The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening and welcome to IMC. Can you guys hear me okay? Okay, great. So tonight I'd like to talk about the root of dharmic happiness. And as introduction, just visualize if you're a visualizer. Imagine that you're on a path winding through an ancient cathedral-like forest canopy, like a rainforest or something like that. It's very quiet, very deep silence. Maybe a few bird calls, light filtering through the leaves. And there's a sense of presence, growing things and reverence as you walk. The path turns a corner and you come upon a clearing And in the middle of the clearing, there's this massive, beautiful Bodhi tree. And the path kind of goes around, circumambulates around the tree, so that you can see these big sloping partitions of the tree going down deep into the earth, the roots. There's a feeling of silence and awe and deep trust in the majesty of this place. So tonight I'm going to talk about some important roots, sources of dharmic development and happiness on the path. These are attitudes that are onward leading in both personal and spiritual maturation and joy. And um, they are kind of trust or confidence in the path itself. They're a sense of... And then the other three are called the three wholesome roots. The three wholesome roots in Buddhism. And those are non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. So first, the trust, the confidence in the unfolding of the path of practice. There are two Pali words commonly used to, um, that are commonly used that are translated as trust or confidence, and they're both very closely related to the word for tranquility or calm, pasadi. And those two words, sada and avecha pasada, you can hear the similarity, right? Sada is to rest the heart upon. It's a certain kind of trust, settling of the heart. Now, vecha pasada is verified faith, it's called. It's the taste of something good that's already unfolded or come from the practice. Some little taste of freedom, maybe a big taste of freedom. In either case, I'm, I'm a little bit more talking about the first one, the settling the heart, the trusting the path, 
here, but in either case, they involve trusting the process, the intrinsic journey of the joy itself. Just being on a path can be satisfying, right? Maybe some of you have um, reference points for this. For me, when I was a kid, I went hiking in the Appalachian Trail with my parents and my sister for weeks. And the act of the hiking itself was really part of what was enjoyable, right? Being surrounded by trees and nature and silence and rhythms, water, for all that time. And occasionally we would come upon these kinds of viewpoints, and they weren't that different than the sorts of places you could drive up to in the Appalachian Mountain Range. But the view was so much more beautiful because we had sunk into it. We were in the process. We were working with it. Um, It was a completely different experience than just kind of like driving up and parking and hopping out of the car and taking a picture and going on, right? So there's this satisfaction that deepens as we commit more to the path, commit more to the process. Trust also can come in a sense of trusting the benefits of training the heart, training the mind. The conditions of our lives are rarely chosen in entirety, right? Some of them we choose, a lot of them come to us. Genetics, happenstance, culture, family, whatever. But um, still, our choices, our choices matter. They create new conditions. The um, Dharma teacher Susie Harrington has an analogy, a simile I really like. It's of a kayaker kayaking down whitewater rapids. So the kayaker, she doesn't choose the way the river cuts through the land or even the amount of water in the river. She certainly doesn't choose how intense the rapids are or the eddies or the trees that have fallen, any of the challenges. Yet, choice matters. There's a skill in operating that kayak, even though all the momentum is going in one direction. In the stream of life, she dances through it, right? There's a way through. So this sense of the trust can also be trusting the unfolding process while making wise choices. Committing to virtue, to goodness, is a really powerful form of conditioning. There's kind of a power or a purpose in putting that boat in the water in the stream, choosing the path. The next three sort of wholesome sources, foundations, roots of dharmic development and happiness are actually called the three wholesome roots in the teachings. And they are, as I mentioned earlier, non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And this kind of clunky wording is classic ancient Buddhism. It's often framed in the negative, and or in the absence of the negative. It's via negativa, framed in the absence of the negative. And 
there's some wisdom in that, right? Non-greed is a huge range of things. It's not just generosity or contentment. It's all these different ways of being. So I'll talk about a bit of the range of each of them, but as I'm talking, just notice what branches of each root might you recognize or see in your heart, in your mind, in your life. So non-greed, there's sort of a range of meanings there. The first being contentment. Just simple contentment. Contentment of being on a path. Contentment of showing up for yourself for the moment. Can also range towards generosity. As I mentioned a moment ago, chagga is the Pali word for that. And that is the primary practice of most Asian lay Buddhists. Sometimes it's the only practice, and it is a powerful practice. It develops a sense of non-self-centeredness. And it's a type of letting go, right? It's a kind of letting go. It's also really powerful for relationship building. There's a Lao Tzu quote, it's actually on one of my walls, it's, Kindness in giving creates love. Kindness in giving creates love. And I'm not necessarily talking about romantic love here, of course, but the connection, the connection between us. There's the sense of the open hand, the gesture of offering, the open heart, the letting go that happens through this. There's another dimension of non-greed, which is simplicity itself. A simplicity of wants, needs, a simplicity of one's schedule. This leads to a certain um, kind of, a word that's not very popular in English, which is renunciation. Right? Renunciation. Which is another level of non-greed the not needing to begin with, less about the giving away and more about the not needing to take, not needing to grab more. It's very countercultural, right? In our society where we get all of these messages, more and more and more, you need to buy this, get that to be this way or whatnot. This is instead a sense of enoughness, just enough, it's okay. This kind of commitment to simplicity opens up time. It's a gift of allowing extra space. Excess baggage doesn't have to be taken with us. It's traveling light on the journey, so to speak. I learned this really in a powerful way. It's now been many years ago, maybe 15 years ago. I was traveling on an extended trip through South Asia, And at the time, I was quite injured, so I couldn't take very much stuff, even though I was gone for almost a year. I had a carry-on wheelie, and I had like this ergonomic, very light backpack. Couldn't put a lot in it. That taught me so much, 
Because on that trip, occasionally I would get things, right? And I realized every time I got something, I had to give something else up because I couldn't carry all of it. And as the trip went on, gradually I was shedding more and more, giving more and more away because as many veteran travelers know, it's kind of a pain in the butt to manage that stuff, to track all that stuff, to keep all that stuff safe. It actually does not lead to a better experience. It's a little bit harder to see in our daily lives, but there's truth there too. How much time do we spend keeping track of all of our stuff? Managing it. This is true of thinking, even. The thought processes or the information we take in, like the endless grasping for news or internet information, can be stressful, right? So the enoughness, okay, that's, this is enough. I've, I've seen enough headlines for today. I've seen enough social media for the year, whatever it is, right? So um, psychologists talk about, I can't remember when I first learned this, but maybe some of you have heard of it. There's the, um, the circle of concern and the circle of action or efficacy, and it's two concentric rings in a diagram. And a very valid predictor of human happiness is how close those circles are to each other. If my circle for con- of concern is massive and my sense of efficacy or action is tiny, what does that lead to? Overwhelm, fatalism, stress. It's not to say we shouldn't be aware of what's happening around us, but to balance those two. Take actions that link those two. And to have a wise diet about this stuff, right? It's it's a kind of simplicity that I've really come to value, and it does quiet the inner mental chatter as well. It's hard to have a peaceful evening meditation if all I've done is listen to news for the last two hours, right? Or, you know, pick your own flavor of what this is, right? So the simplicity of thinking also involves a simplicity of relationship to life, to my interpretations of things. I mean, our minds are interpretation, meaning-making organs, right? That's what minds do. And yet there are ways of having a simpler relationship to what that is and to maybe not taking it so seriously all the time, right? Like, oh, yeah, I remember one of my teachers used to say, yada, 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 blah, 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 when he was talking about the mind, because it just goes on. And there's a way of just stepping back and being simple with that. And over hours and days and weeks and years of practice, the mind starts to do it less. I was really struck by this at one point. I don't remember at what point it was in my practice that I realized the inner narrator just doesn't talk very often anymore. I was like, hmm, 
no wonder there's so much more space. <laughs> wow. So um, that can start to happen, and then everything else opens up, right? And there are times it comes up again, of course. For us humans, that's what minds do. But even then, there's the distance. It's like the difference between being this close to the flat screen television or being on the other side of the room and having a lot more space about context or maybe even being outside the house glancing at the TV from across the street through the window. We don't have to be glued to the content of our thoughts when there's simplicity. It's just all thinking, conditioning, mental habit, whatever it is. And then there's a simplicity of awareness itself, and that's more of an attribute of mindfulness, lucid awareness, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But all of those things, the contentment, the generosity, the simplicity, the renunciation, all are kinds of branches in the root of non-greed. And then we get to non-hatred. Avera is the Pali. Avera. And non-hatred is... Has, it's got a very esteemed place in the Buddhist teachings. It's a really big deal. It's often a cognate for metta, goodwill, love, kindness. And that's a, a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful quality. It's also a whole range of non-hostility. John Passano on a metta retreat early in my practice named, you know, you don't have to start out by loving all living beings. That's a really high bar. Then why don't you practice not being averse to them quite so often? Right? That itself is a high bar, depending on the being and depending on my mind and the day. Right? So non-aversion, non-hatred. This broad flavor includes respect, non-contempt, equanimity, appreciation, kind curiosity, all the way up through goodwill, benevolence, altruism, compassion. There's a whole range. Maybe you can think of others even not particularly caring, just letting someone be. That's non-hatred, allowing. There's a distinction that has kind of become clearer to me over the time I've practiced this path which is um, even the smallest movement of the heart or mind can be considered an action, right? Sometimes in meditation you might actually feel that. It's um, the about-to-ness of maybe like getting up or the leaning forward of wanting or the leaning back of not wanting. 
But those kinds of really subtle actions. And these actions also aggregate to more of an action, life action. To quote St. Thomas Aquinas, to love is to will the good of the other. To love is to will the good of the other. So there's an active component to that. Compassion, anukampa, is um, sort of the natural compassion that arises. It's a quivering or movement of the heart, caring. And it has in it implicit the wish to respond. may not be able to respond depending on the context or the circumstances, but that movement of the heart is there. This kind of love, compassion, kindness, it belongs to all humanity, not just Buddhism, not just any religious tradition. It's, it belongs to all of them, runs through all of them, underpins all of them. Whether it's love thy enemy or metta for all beings or simple generosity and charity for those who need it, those all kind of interweave. And the ultimate aim in this tradition of metta, of loving kindness, is to hold everyone in that kindness without wishing harm on any of them. Again, avera, non-harming, ahimsa. These are powerful, powerful intentions to cultivate and powerful moments to experience. What is it like to hold that intention without even harming or deprecating oneself when it's not there, when it's not actionable? When I might want to be feeling love and kindness, but what I'm feeling is grumpiness, irritation, or even rage? Can there be kindness to the mind or heart that's not there right now? Is that possible too? And the discernment, the discernment not to buy into the unwholesome movement, the unwholesome tendency, by honestly turning towards it with awareness. This kind of stuff strengthens the muscle of emotional and spiritual maturity. It requires discernment, right? It's like, Understanding these little bitty differences about what's happening in the mind or what causes what in our hearts. There's a story I love. This is from a podcast, Invisibilia. Um, Some seasons back, I honestly don't remember how many. But it's the story of this family who's having... It's like a barbecue or a cookout in their backyard... And it's, you know, maybe a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon and, you know, they've got something grilling and other stuff on the table and everybody's hanging out, having a good time. There's a little bit of wine. And it starts getting towards dusk. It's a semi-urban environment, right? And out of the dusk and the space between the houses comes a man with a knife intending to rob them. And he shows up brandishes this knife and demands money. 
And the hostess, without missing a beat, stands up, smiles at him, and said, Welcome. Would you like some food? Here, have a glass of wine. The man is dumbfounded, completely perplexed. Just, And he was kind of young. And the way the story goes, his lips sort of started quivering, and he accepted the wine, put away the knife, ran off. <laughs> I didn't see him again. But the next morning, when they were finishing their cleaning up, they found that wine glass empty, very carefully laid against the side of the house. He didn't even take the glass. He made sure not to break it. That's the power of metta, kindness, in the face of something quite different. In psychology, this is called a non-complementary response. When someone comes at you with rage, what's the most natural thing any of us would have? Fear or anger, right? Depending, maybe both. There might be a fight, flight, or freeze response on a nervous system level. It can be an extraordinary jujitsu of the moment to have a different response than what that calls out by instinct. I've discovered this in my work as a chaplain, too. Um, One of the hospitals that I trained at, I used to get called. They they did it once by accident, I think, because the person who usually dealt with such things didn't, couldn't respond. And then after they figured out that it worked, they kept doing it. Um, A very, very upset family member was in one of the waiting rooms. I mean, they were yelling and they were spouting off sort of like angry comments and just making a real scene. And so they asked me to go down and talk to him, and I was happy to go talk to him. Security was sort of in the background. They weren't coming up, but they were nearby in case things went south. It was absolutely amazing just going up to this man and very kindly meeting him and listening and eliciting all of the concerns and empathizing with the feelings, the emotion just went down and down and down. And by the end of that conversation, he was praising the service. He needed to be heard. That's what, you know, I mean, there were issues we needed to help with too, and we did. But as far as the emotion went, it just needed to be heard, to be met with attention and kindness. So I want to name that's not always the correct response or the wisest response to these situations, right? And so a counter story. This is one that Sharon Salzberg loves to tell, so you may have heard it. She is traveling in India by rickshaw in New Delhi. And those of you who haven't been to India, New Delhi is huge. It is busy, it's chaotic, and it's notoriously crime-ridden. So she's on a rickshaw. It's the bicycle kind, not the motor kind. And they're headed off to see her teacher, Manindraji. And the rickshaw turns down a side street off of this just like massive, packed flow of traffic, And a man tries to jump on the rickshaw and 
pull Sharon, especially her purse, off. It's terrifying, I'm sure. And together, she and the driver were able to fend this man off, and they made it to her teacher, and she's understandably very shaken. And she looks at him, and she said, what do I do as a Buddhist in a case like that? And Manindraji looks at her, and with a lot of love in his eyes, he says, my dear, with every ounce of loving kindness in your heart, you hit him over the head with your umbrella. Right? So, sometimes a really strong no is the wisest thing. Right? This is not advocating being a doormat. Non-hatred is not meaning opening ourselves up to violence or abuse or anything else. But it's more the attitude with which we hold the boundary and the discernment to know when the non-complementary response is appropriate and when the really strong no is the most helpful response. So that brings me to us to non-delusion. Discernment falls into that category. Discernment, wisdom, clarity are all in the non-delusion category. So non-delusion, from a Buddhist perspective, I think um, one could say it starts with sati, with mindfulness, awareness. And that eventually matures into clarity and wisdom discernment and wisdom and clarity. So sati is like kind of an information gathering process. Mindfulness. Mindfulness is got many nuances. One could give an entire talk on just what mindfulness means, but it's got different aspects to it. And one of them is to be present with what is, right? to be actually present with what is. And that seems like a really powerful underpinning for any kind of wisdom or non-delusion. If I'm in the virtual reality machine that runs up here, my chances of non-delusion are a lot smaller than if I'm present with what's actually unfolding. What the eyes see, the ears hear, the body can sense. So, starting with mindfulness wherever it's at, occasional, intentional, sometimes it can even feel labored. Gil sometimes says there's parts of the practice that can feel like manual labor, right? All of that still starts to cultivate the conditions for non-delusion, little by little. And later it can become easeful, can get momentum and even feel completely natural. And for some people, it ends up becoming a trait, actually. Shifts our minds over time. That neuroplasticity shifts in really beautiful ways. So that moment-to-moment process also includes a resonance of recollecting or recollecting 
there's a part of mindfulness that um, kind of casts its way back just a little bit, enough to recognize the thread between the immediate past and the present. And that's where wisdom can start to come, is when we see cause and effect or conditions affecting each other. And it starts to gain momentum that way too. It's like the moments of mindfulness gradually widen, like puddles widening together to create a pond or something like that. There's also, though, the recollection aspect of recollecting the virtues in the practice, your own virtues. This is also a form of non-delusion. For some reason in our culture, it's so easy for people to feel like it's important to be down on ourselves, to have some kind of critical inner voice or that we won't somehow get stuff done if we're not hard on ourselves. Recollecting virtues is actually an ancient practice. It's one of the fundamental practices, our own virtues and those of others, the good things we've done. That, too, is a form of cutting through delusion, particularly delusion if there's a negative mental habit about the self. For those people who are more apt to cast blame outwards, a better practice is to recollect the virtues of others, right? that annoying office mate or the family member who chews wrong or has the wrong political views or whatever it is. So this um, gradually begins to mature into the kind of discernment I alluded to before. And when mindfulness starts to mature into discernment, it's likened to being a gatekeeper of a village. Um, keep in mind, most of the similes in the Buddhist teachings are from the Bronze Age in India, right? So, the gatekeeper of a village. The gatekeeper just kind of monitors all the traffic going in and out. Knows how to get to the king. It's judicious about who to tell that information to. And is judicious about who to pass along word, you know, you might want to keep an eye on this gang of people, right? And it's kind of the same in our minds, right? To monitor the in and out traffic. The Buddha talks about there being two kinds of thought. There's beneficial and unbeneficial, wholesome and unwholesome. And so it can be as simple as that, noticing as the effect opening me up, settling me, motivating me, or is it making me feel kind of small and hopeless and yucky? Is it resulting in actions that are helpful for myself and others, or actions that bring greater suffering to me and or others? And that's actually kind of the definition of a wise person versus a foolish person. And, you know, any of us can be wise or foolish in any given moment, but a foolish person is engaged in actions or thoughts that bring more suffering to themselves, others, and the world. Different day, 
that person might be engaged in thoughts or actions that bring benefit to themselves and others in the world. And that's wisdom. So all of this kind of discernment kind of evolves into a greater wisdom. And this includes more of a settled strength to see the opposite of the three wholesome roots, greed, hatred, and delusion, and all of their cronies, all of their henchmen, without losing our seat, without being thrown off. Because with the exception of the very rare, fully enlightened, awakened beings, all of us have some of it in our hearts. Right? It's just part of being human. And understanding that, when it's held well, it can actually increase compassion and empathy, connection, wisdom. Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes, If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. He then goes on to say, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor through classes, nor through political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. It's what we do with it, how we relate to it, how we act on that. That's what matters. Some days it's more, some days it's less. You do a ton of spiritual practice and work on yourself, and it's going to get really small. But even then, I just think of, many of you have probably seen or heard the Dalai Lama laugh And he has this just amazingly infectious laugh. It's kind of like a little kid's, right? And at one point, I've read this, but I've also heard him say it, he he laughs at seeing the selfish and sneaky parts of his own mind. The man's been practicing since he was, I don't know, four? And when asked, you know, fully purified in there, he's like, no, ha, 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 you know. It still tries to sneak up on me now and then, that mind. So it's that holding it lightly. The tendencies start to attenuate when held lightly. So all of this, all of this starts to kind of pull together in a way to noticing the impact in our hearts and in our relationships on how we're relating to the things we don't like in ourselves and to noticing the things that we appreciate in ourselves and others, the non-greed, the non-hatred, the non-delusion. Because that, whether you believe in terms of energy or neurology, that has ripple effects in our lives. There's a second gatekeeper story. And this one 
this is a more sort of friendly human, um, human like he's, he's rendered in more human way in the ancient discourses. And there's a story, he's like, you know, a friendly sort and talks to everybody and people ask him questions going into this village. They're coming in for the first time or relocating. And so one group passes by and the head of the group says, so um, tell me, what are the people like here? And he smiles and looks at them and he said, tell me what the people were like where you used to live. Oh, mean, cunning, conniving. You couldn't trust them as far as you could throw them. They were awful and rude. He just nods. I think you'll find people like that here. A few more parties go by, maybe an hour or two, another group comes by, and someone poses the exact same question, maybe worded a little different. What are the people like here, anyway? Give me an idea. Well, how did you find them where you used to live? Kind, generous, trustworthy. I really, I didn't want to leave, but, you know, my husband, he got this new job, and here we are. But they were amazing, really good neighbors. And the gatekeeper nods and he says, I think you'll find people much like that here. Right? So, all of this wraps back around to trust and contentment in the path. Right? Noticing what we put out is a lot like what we receive. Not always, but sometimes. But trusting the process of the meditation, this internal development, commitment to cultivating virtue, and how that can shift things. There's a hidden, almost selfish joy with being involved in a path like this, particularly if it involves orienting around service to something bigger than we are, right? Service to others. And um, that can feed this light, healthy sense of a bigger picture that undercuts the greed, hatred, and delusion and helps the non-greed, non-hate, non-delusion, those roots to really grow. So, just to recap, in closing, trust in the unfolding path, explore, express the many branches of these roots of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion, like contentment, simplicity, generosity, respect, kindness and goodwill, mindfulness, discernment, and enjoy it when you can. Thank you for your kind attention. We have just a moment or two if anyone has questions, comments. Um, I ran a little longer than I expected, so sorry it's a moment or two.
floor of the internet and say thank you. May our practice here together be a cause and condition for greater peace, happiness, patience, simplicity, goodwill, discernment and wisdom in our lives. And may the benefits of this practice ripple out to all of the lives we touch and all of the lives they touch, outward and outward. May all beings be happy, safe, peaceful, and free. Thank you all for the sincerity of your practice.